At age 17, John Mearsheimer entered the U.S. Army as an enlisted man. A year later, he became a full-time student at West Point, where he graduated as an officer in 1970. For the next five years, he served on active duty in the United States Air Force. After his military time was finished, Mr. Mearsheimer got his master's in international relations at the University of Southern California. And then at age 33, received his Ph.D. from Cornell in 1980. During his 40 years in the political science department at the University of Chicago, he has not avoided controversy. A recent example is the headline in the March 1st issue of the New Yorker magazine, which reads, quote, Why John Mearsheimer Blames the U.S. for the Crisis in Ukraine, unquote. We ask him to explain. Professor John Mearsheimer, why did you enlist in the Army back in the late I mean, 60s? I mainly enlisted in the Army because uh, it was a way to get into West Point. Uh, I had graduated from high school, and I had been an alternate in the application process to West Point. And uh, I didn't really want to go to any other college uh, at that point in time. And I knew that if you enlisted in the Army and spent a year in the Army, uh, that you could uh, get an appointment to West Point through the Army. So I enlisted, spent a year in the Army, and indeed I got an appointment to West Point the following year. Why did you think you wanted to go to West Point? I didn't want to go to West Point. Uh, my father wanted me to go to West Point. And uh, my father exercised great course of leverage over me. <laughs> and he pushed me down that road, much to my chagrin. I'm now enormously thankful that my father uh, pushed me to go to West Point because I think West Point played a key role in making me what I am today. But at the time, I had really zero interest in going to West Point, and it was just coercive pressure from my father uh, that caused me to end up there. I know that you, I think you moved from New York City to Groton on Hudson when you were eight. Is that across the Hudson from West Point? It's across the Hudson from West Point, but further down. It's more or less midway between New York City and West Point, although it's uh, obviously on the same side of the Hudson River as West Point. Why did your dad think that was a good idea? Well, my father uh, was in World War II, and uh, then he got out. Uh, he got married, and he started having children, and I was one of them. And at the time, uh, there was a housing shortage in New York City. Uh, and at the same time, the baby boom was beginning. 1946 was the first year of the boom. I was born in December 1947, so I was born in the second year of the boom. And these large families were coming online, and there really wasn't enough housing in New York City. And this is when the suburbs uh, began to blossom, places like Levittown out on Long Island are prominent examples. And in those days, people moved in one of three directions. You either went to Long Island, you went to Westchester, or you went to New Jersey. And in my parents' case, they moved to uh, Croton, New York, uh, which is on the uh, Hudson River. And the reason my father did that was he worked for what was then the New York Central Railroad. And New York Central Railroad lines ran up and down the Hudson. If he had worked for the Long Island Railroad, it would have made sense to move to Long Island. But working for the New York Central Railroad, it made sense to move uh, to Croton, New York. So what did you take away from West Point? Well, I think that uh, you learned uh, a lot about suffering at West Point. Uh, it was a really tough place between 1966 and 1970 when I was there. And you learned to fight your way through adversity, just to get up every day and wrestle with the bear, uh, as I like to say. Uh, it taught you to be honest or truthful. It was a place that put a very high premium on truth-telling uh, because it was combat training. You were training young men at that time to be combat officers, and telling the truth in combat situations really mattered. So I think uh, uh, I learned that it was important to be a truth-teller there. Uh, and uh, I learned all sorts of other things as well that, you know, came in uh, very handy 
later in life. What did you think of the education side of it? I thought the education side of it was too math and science oriented. Uh, West Point was originally an engineering school. Virtually everybody who went through the program, you know, up until the post-World War II period, uh, took a heavy dose of engineering courses, math courses, and science courses, and very few courses in the humanities and the social sciences. Uh, that had begun to change when I went there. Of course, it's changed in fundamental ways now. But uh, I thought it was uh, too oriented in that direction. But it was a place where you were forced to go to class every day. You just never missed class, and you had to get the work done. Uh, so when I went to graduate school and a professor would uh, put uh, an unreasonable requirement on the students, say, for example, the professor said that you have to have a paper in in two days and that paper has to be 50 pages long. Most students just wouldn't do it. But if you went to West Point, if a professor told you to have a paper 50 pages long in two days, you had a paper 50 pages long in two days because West Point was what we used to call a no-excuses-sir world. You just got the job done. And uh, so I found in graduate school that you know West Point was very useful uh, for helping me make it through. 1970 and 1975, U.S. Air Force, how did that happen? Well, it was the case uh, in those days that uh, when I graduated in 1970, that if your father had served in the Air Force or your father was an active duty officer in the Air Force, uh, you could go into the Air Force from West Point. And this is all a vestige of the fact that before uh, 1947, there was no independent Air Force. It was the Army Air Corps, for example, in World War II. The Army Air Corps was obviously part of the Army. You finally got an independent Air Force in 1947. But by the time I graduated in 70, um, there was still a bit of a connection between the Air Force and West Point, uh, going back to those old days. And it turned out that my father uh, had gotten mobilized after the North Koreans captured the Pueblo, I don't know if you remember, but President Johnson at the time mobilized the reserves. And my father, who had been in the Army Air Corps in World War II, was still in the reserves. He was an Air Force Reserve Colonel, and he got mobilized. So when I graduated in June 1970, I could say that my father was an active duty Air Force officer, which allowed me to go into the Air Force and not go into the Army. And it's really all due to Kim Il-sung uh, and the capturing of the Pueblo that I ended up in the Air Force instead of in the Army. Where did you spend those five years in the Air Force? Two places. My first job was in Los Angeles. Uh, I worked uh, on space and missile programs. Um, and uh, my second job was in upstate New York at a place called uh, Griffiths Air Force Base, uh, and there I worked on electronic systems. Uh, I was basically in Air Force research and development, and there were three branches to that world. One were space and missiles, two were electronics, and three were aircraft. Uh, I was never in the aircraft business or the airplane business, but I was in the electronics business, and I was in the space and missile uh, business, but it was all part of the the R and D world inside the Air Force. In a short time, we'll get to what you've done most of your life: speak and write and teach about international relations. But <clears throat> before we get there, what were you thinking back in the seventies after West Point and the U.S. Air Force about the role of military in the world? About the United States? Had you formed your views then that you have now? No, uh, I was remarkably ignorant at the time. Uh, I had not been a good student up until my very last year at West Point when I got interested in international relations. Uh, and it was only in my senior year that I did well at West Point. I like to tell people that I was in the bottom one-third of my class at West Point, and I was not even the top man in the bottom one-third. <laughs> so I was really a terrible student, and uh, I knew very little about 
graduate school or becoming a scholar or IR theory or any of the things I know so much about now. I, I just was remarkably ignorant. But I found that I loved the study of international relations. I loved studying international security issues. And I decided that I was going to get a PhD. And after I got out of West Point and when I was in the Air Force, I began to work toward that goal. And slowly but steadily, uh, you know, I began to move into the academy and learn more and more. But uh, I never dreamed in those early years that I would be a prominent professor at the University of Chicago. I just never thought that was even possible. I was just interested in getting a PhD and learning all sorts of things about international relations in general and international security in particular. But uh, I had no grandiose vision at the time. And the truth is, although I'm known as, you know, sort of a prominent realist now, I never thought much about what realism was and whether I was or was not a realist uh, for many years. Uh, probably wasn't until I came to the University of Chicago in 1982 that I began to sort of develop that identity. What is a prominent realist? Well, in the international relations world, uh, when you talk about the key bodies of theories, uh, there are really two key bodies of theory. Uh, one are the liberal theories, uh, and two are the realist theories. And the realist theories focus on the balance of power. And the basic argument is that states really care a great deal about the balance of power because their survival is affected by just how powerful they are relative to other states in the system. And that's the camp that I fit in. Liberals tend to have a very different view of the world. And there you have three different liberal theories. One is democratic peace theory, which says that democracies don't fight other democracies. Economic interdependence theory, which says if you have a lot of economic interdependence between countries, they won't go to war. And then third, liberal institutionalism, which says that institutions uh, are a very powerful force for peace because they teach student, uh, they teach scholars, in effect, to obey the rules. They give states powerful incentives to obey the rules. So you have these three liberal theories on one side. And then on the other side, you have a body of realist theories. And I fit squarely in the latter box. You got your master's at the University of Southern California in 74. You started it. When did you complete it? I started it in 71, and I finished it in 74. Uh, my first job in the Air Force was in Los Angeles, as I said before. And when I was in Los Angeles, I went part-time uh, to USC uh, and then actually went full-time for a semester and got my master's degree there. And then, of course, when I got out of the Air Force, uh, I went to Cornell, uh, and that's where I got my Ph.D. When did you start having strong realist views? The truth is not until I came to the University of Chicago. Um, in graduate school, I got uh, caught up uh, writing a dissertation on conventional deterrence. Uh, and, and this was really all about the question of what uh, the balance of forces looked like on the central front in Europe and whether or not uh, the United States and its NATO allies had the military wherewithal to deter the Warsaw Pact, and in particular the Soviet Union, from attacking. So that's what I really focused on. Uh, one could say that's sort of a realist issue, but I didn't think about it that way at the time. Then I came to the University of Chicago in 1982, and one of the courses that I taught off the bat was a course on international relations theory. And Chicago, of course, is a very theoretical place. And once you start teaching IR theory, you delve into those liberal and realist theories that I was describing to you before. And I engaged with both bodies of theory, and I quickly discovered, unsurprisingly, that I was a realist. And I began to sort of go back and forth with the key realist works and see where I agreed and where I disagreed. And eventually, I formulated my own realist theory of how the world works, 
which is somewhat different than the other major theories. And then I eventually wrote that up and uh, I became, I think it's fair to say, a prominent realist. Before you got to the University of Chicago, you spent a couple years as a research fellow at Brookings. What is Brookings and why did you go there and what did you learn from that experience? Well, I spent one year at Brookings and then I spent two years as a postdoc at Harvard. I was a pre-doc, uh, pre-doctoral fellow. I hadn't finished my dissertation completely uh, the year I spent at Brookings. That was 1979 to 1980. Uh, and then uh, from 1980 to 1982, I was at Harvard as a postdoc in a program that Sam Huntington ran at the time. Uh, I think that Brookings was a terribly important experience because when I was at Cornell from 1975 to 1979, I had a pretty good sense that um, I, I was good at being a scholar. Um, I, I really liked it, and, and I could write, and I could come up with creative ideas. So I, I had quite a bit of self-confidence, but I didn't have a lot of self-confidence. Uh, and then I got to Brookings, and at Brookings there were a large number of people who were my age uh, who had gone to fancy schools like Harvard and Yale and Stanford and so forth and so on. And I found from hanging around the coffee table and talking to people in the halls that I could easily hold my own with all of those folks. And I think that's the first time I really got a good sense that I could make it as an academic in some sort of meaningful way. Uh, so Brookings was very important for that reason, in, in addition to the fact that it gave me a year of free time to finish my dissertation. And then when I finished at Brookings, I went to Harvard for two years, and that allowed me to write an article or two, but more importantly, turn my dissertation into a book, which is enormously important for purposes of getting tenure and being successful in the academy. And uh, and at, Har at Harvard, which was then the center of the universe for people who did international security, uh, I met all sorts of people who became close friends and who I learned an enormous amount from. Uh, I've always been a person who, who appreciated the fact that uh, much of my success derives from the fact that Number one, I've stood on the shoulders of other people, other scholars who have come behind uh, before me. But furthermore, I have lots of colleagues, people in my cohort who have taught me an enormous amount. Uh, I've learned so much from them. And uh, that was true when I was a graduate student at Cornell. And it was certainly true those two years I was at Harvard. I was hanging around with a lot of really smart people, and I learned a lot. And, you know, I would give my papers or my book chapters to people to read, and they would give me terrific feedback. And, uh, and, and that helped me uh, make me what I am. You know, a lot of people, when they deal with me today, they think I came out of my mother's womb reading Clausewitz. They think I was this, you know, burgeoning scholar at at the beginning, but nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, I picked up all these things as time went by, and uh, and I learned a lot, both you, at Brookings and, and at Harvard. Can you name some of the people that had an influence on your thinking, either, I don't want to say pro and con, but uh, you know, any either way, where you totally disagreed with them, or you then started to uh, find yourself in agreement? I think there are a handful of people whose work I profited from greatly. Uh, Paul Kennedy, uh, who's very famous for writing a book called The Rise and Fall of Great Powers, wrote an earlier book uh, called The Rise and Fall of British Naval Mastery, which is a book that I read many times uh, and I uh, found to be uh, enormously helpful for thinking about the world. Uh, and of course, for someone who operates in the realist world like I do, uh, there's no question that Kenneth Waltz's book, Theory of International Politics, uh, is enormously important. And uh, in very important ways, uh, I developed my realist theory by arguing with Kenneth Waltz's book uh, 
and also arguing with a book by uh, a good friend of mine who teaches at Columbia named Jack Snyder. He wrote a book called Myths of Empire. And I just disagreed almost completely with Jack's take on international politics. And I also disagreed in fundamental way with certain core aspects of Waltz's theory. And what I did was, in effect, formulate my own theory by engaging with them in what was effectively a dialectical process. But I think that Paul Kennedy uh, and uh, and Ken Waltz were two of the people who, who really mattered a lot to me. Uh, but it wasn't so much that I agreed with them. Uh, I think that I have been hardwired from the beginning as something of a contrarian. Uh, I was always willing to cut against the grain. And uh, so I don't, I can't point to many books that I read or articles that I read where I agreed with something and that then influenced uh, how I think. I'm sure there was a lot of that going on, but I'm not aware of it in any meaningful way. But I am aware of books and articles that I've read that I've disagreed with and I've wanted to write in response to. What motivated you to write the book, Why Leaders Lie? I get a call one day from a journalist uh, at the New York Times, and uh, he said that he had been assigned to write an article on lying in international politics. And he said that the first name that popped into his head on the subject was me. And I didn't know him. I think his name was Serge Maiman. And he said, anyway, he's he said, I'm just calling you out of the blue uh, to ask you for your views on lying in international politics to help me write this article for the Times. And I said to him, I said, listen, I have never thought about the subject. I don't even know where to start. I said, so why don't you just tell me what you're thinking and uh, I'll give you my response and we can go back and forth, bounce ideas off of each other. So we did that maybe for an hour, an hour and a half. Um, and when it was done, I wrote a memo for the record, uh, just, you know, what we had talked about. And because uh, I thought maybe someday I'd write something on it or have to think about it again. Anyway, I put the memo away. And a couple months later, I got a call from MIT. They asked me if I'd come give a talk. I said, sure. And they said, what do you want to talk about? And I couldn't think of a subject, but all of a sudden it popped into my brain that maybe I ought to talk about lying. So I said, what if I come give a talk on lying and international politics? They said, terrific. So I took the notes from my discussion with Serge and uh, formulated a talk and went to MIT and gave the talk. And what you discover very quickly when you talk about lying in international politics is that people are fascinated by the subject. And uh, so I, I found that uh, talk at MIT very engaging. And then I gave subsequent talks and the same thing was the case. And what made it very interesting is that one of my principal findings uh, to my amazement, was that leaders do not lie much to each other. They tend to lie much more to their own publics. And when I would tell audiences that, they didn't believe it. And they believed that leaders lie to each other all the time. And I would say to audiences, look, I don't have a dog in this fight. If that's true, fine. But you have to provide evidence to me that there's a lot of lying going on between leaders. And people would say, that's easy to do. So I say, here's my email. When you go home, list all the cases and send me the emails or send me the list uh, via email. And uh, some people did that. And when you looked carefully, either I had those cases, the few cases that there were, or the cases that they pointed to were really not cases of lying, if you define lying properly. Um, and uh, so that was quite fascinating, and it made for a lot of fun. And uh, I wrote this short little book on why leaders lie. Anybody in history that you have studied, uh, would you put it the number one slot on the best liar? Uh, on the what? Best liar. Who would, which world leader has been really good at it? I think that Hitler was the best. Uh, 
I mean, I've not sat down and thought long and hard about this, but I would think that that Hitler fits that description. Um, I mean, looking at Hitler from the perspective of 2022, what he did in terms of the Holocaust and all the other murderous behavior, and in terms of starting World War II, uh, it all seems so obvious and that people should have known it at the time. And it's remarkable that they didn't move earlier to deal with him and so forth and so on. But if you go back into the 1930s and you, you put yourself in a situation where you don't have the benefit of hindsight, it's very hard to read him. Uh, and it's very hard to read him because he is duplicitous in the extreme and, and he is very good at lying. Uh, I mean, he convinced the British and French leaders, especially Neville Chamberlain at uh, Munich, that uh, all he wanted was the Sudetenland in Czechoslovakia, and that would be the end of it. And uh, he told, you know, a large number of other lies as well. Uh, and uh, and people tended to believe him. And uh, the end result uh, was that he was in part successful uh, uh, successful in starting uh, this murderous campaign uh, that began uh, actually in March 1938 when he took the rest of Czechoslovakia. March 1939 when he took the rest of Czechoslovakia. Who was a bad liar? Who was a bad liar? Somebody that I'm lied not... all the time, but you could look at him and say, yeah, you're not convincing me or anybody. Oh, that has to be Donald Trump. Has to be Donald Trump. Look, the one thing that one of the important lessons I learned about lying is that if you lie all the time, it's not very effective. Uh, a person who is seen as a truth teller and is seen to tell the truth almost all the time can get away with lying because people are inclined to believe that person is telling the truth. Um, and uh, someone like Trump, uh, he just <laughs> told bold-faced lies all the time, and people, therefore, were not fooled. Now, one could argue that those were not lies because Trump actually believed what he was saying. In other words, for something to be a lie, you have to believe that you are telling a falsehood. And one could argue that Trump really believed what he was saying, and therefore he wasn't lying. Uh, I actually think that's not true. Uh, but the truth is that his lies were largely ineffective uh, because people were on to him very quickly. Coming to today, um, in a recent New Yorker piece, an interview with you with Isaac Chutner, uh the headline on it is, Why John Mearsheimer Blames the U.S. for the Crisis in Ukraine. Uh, wh why do you? Well, I think there are two ways of thinking about the causes of the present crisis, which, of course, uh, now involves a war in Ukraine. Uh, the first view, which is the conventional wisdom, for sure, uh, in the West and certainly in the United States, is that Putin is to blame uh, and that Putin is a revanchist. He's interested in either recreating the Soviet Union or he's interested in creating a greater Russia that looks like uh, the former Soviet Union. And, and what's going on in Ukraine is the first move in that direction. That's one view. The other view, which is my view, is this is all about NATO expansion. And the taproot of the problem is the April 2008 NATO decision. This is a decision was made at the NATO summit in Bucharest, Bucharest in uh, April 2008 to include both Georgia and Ukraine in NATO. The Russians said at the time, Putin in particular, but all of the Russian elites, that this is categorically unacceptable. We are drawing a red line in the sand. Georgia and Ukraine are not going to become part of NATO. And indeed, in August of 2008, you had a war over Georgia, and that was all about NATO expansion. Then the Ukraine crisis broke out into the open on February 22nd, 2014, uh, and it continues to this day. 
And in my opinion, it is all about NATO expansion. The Russians have made it unequivocally clear that Ukraine is not going to become part of NATO. But at the same time, the United States refuses to accept Russia's position on that matter. And we have continued to push to incorporate Ukraine into NATO. And the end result is we had a second major crisis break out in December of last year. That's December 2021. And then on February 24th of this year, it turned into a hot war. So my view is this is not a case of Putin uh, trying to recreate the Soviet Union. In fact, there's no hard evidence at all that he has ever said that that was his goal, that he thought that that was even feasible. There's just no evidence of that. And in fact, what he has said ad nauseum and his lieutenants, to include people like Sergei Lavrov, had said, have said ad nauseum, is that this is all about NATO expansion, which it is. What do you think of NATO? Well, I think that NATO does an excellent job of maintaining the peace in most of Europe because it keeps the Americans in Europe and the Americans act as a pacifier. And that worked uh, certainly during the Cold War, and it worked with the first tranche of NATO expansion, which included Poland, Hungary, and the Czech Republic. And it worked with the second tranche of NATO expansion. That was in 2004. The first tranche was in 1999. Uh, So up until then, NATO served a useful purpose in keeping the peace in Europe. But then in 2008, we decided there was going to be a major tranche that included major tranche of expansion that included Ukraine and Georgia. And as I said to you before, that led to disaster. The Soviets said, excuse me, the Russians said that is not happening. And we're in this crisis today. So I I think NATO worked well for a while. And you want to remember that when the Cold War ended, when the Cold War ended, then the Soviet Union wanted NATO to remain intact And it wanted the Americans to remain in Europe, mainly to keep the Germans down. So the Soviet Union and then later Russia was not against the existence of NATO. What they were opposed to was NATO expansion. The Russians did not want NATO expansion. And they tolerated it two times in 99 and in 2004. But after 2008, it became a hot-button issue, and it led to the crisis today. Now, the fact is that in the West, most people do not accept that argument, because if you accept that argument, you are, in effect, blaming the West for the crisis. You are blaming the United States for the present crisis, and nobody in the West wants that charge leveled against them. Instead, they want to blame Vladimir Putin. So what they've done is they've invented this story that Vladimir Putin is a revanchist, that he's interested in creating a new version of the Soviet Union, even though there's no evidence to support that. But it's a palatable line of argument in the West, and therefore people have glommed onto it. There are some 30 countries in NATO, excuse me, but the United States pays but I think something like 69% of the defense costs. What do you think of that? Well, first of all, it makes perfect sense from the perspective of the other NATO members to let Uncle Sam pay the bills. I mean, this is a case where you want to pass the buck to Uncle Sam. Second, it's in Uncle Sam's interest to some extent to have full control over NATO and to not have powerful allies who would therefore have a lot of say in how the alliance runs. So I actually think we have been somewhat willing to allow our allies to have small and relatively weak militaries in good part because that does not allow them to challenge us very much regarding NATO policy. 
So I think this all makes sense. And until recently, NATO, with this distribution of responsibilities, did a good job of keeping the peace. But now we've made a hash of things. We have this huge problem in Eastern Europe that doesn't appear to be going away. And we're going to have to up the ante. Uh, We're going to have to spend more money. And this is a huge problem for the United States because Russia's not a serious threat to the United States. There is a serious threat in the system. There is a pure competitor out there. It's called China. And the United States should be focusing laser-like on containing China. We should actually be pivoting to Asia and pivoting out of Europe. The fact that we're getting more deeply involved in Eastern Europe and taking our eye off the ball in East Asia is a colossal strategic blunder. This is why I argue that the country that is going to benefit the most from the Ukraine crisis is China, because China has to worry less about America being on its doorstep pursuing a vigorous containment policy because the United States has foolishly bogged itself down on uh, in, in Eastern Europe. The United States had a couple hundred thousand military people around the world, something like 800 bases throughout the world. Uh, we still have a lot of troops in Japan and South Korea. Good idea? Some of those troops uh, are uh, uh, definitely needed. Uh, I mean, uh, we uh, have uh, military commitments that really matter in both the Persian Gulf and in East Asia. Uh, And as Chinese power grows and China begins to build the Blue Water Navy and it begins to project power around the world, many of those bases will come in handy. Uh, So I think in terms of most of the bases, it makes eminently good sense. Uh, I think the really interesting question is how we should think about Europe. Uh, One could argue that we should get out of Europe and pivot completely to East Asia. And to the extent that we worry about another region of the world, that other region should be the Persian Gulf because all that oil is there. And also because the Chinese are now forming close relations with both the Iranians and the Saudis and other Gulf states. Uh, The Chinese are going to be deeply involved in the Gulf. And because the Chinese are our principal threat in the system, uh, the Gulf is going to matter for that reason, in addition to the fact that you have all that oil there. Uh, So one could argue that what we need to do is reduce our military bases in Europe. I would be fully in favor of that. But as I said to you earlier, if anything, we're going in the opposite direction. The last time we talked, it was about your book on the Israel lobby. What's the fallout uh, to this day? And that was a lot of years ago. But what's the fallout to today, up till now, about that book? Because as my, my memory is, it was somewhat controversial. Yeah, the book, the, art, the original article came out in the London Review of Books in March of 2006, and then the book came out uh, a little over a year later in uh, late August of 2007. And I think uh, the controversy over the book uh, was enormous. I think there's no doubt about that. Uh, and uh, over time, I think what has happened is that most people have come to accept the fact that there is an Israel lobby. When the article and the book first came out, there were a number of people who thought we were, in effect, making this up. I think now most people, at least that I talk to, and from what I can tell from reading the newspapers, reading articles and books, is that it's commonplace to talk about the lobby. Uh, I think most people now recognize that the lobby does have enormous power. And I want to emphasize now, as I did then, that there is nothing wrong with that. Uh, You know, this is American politics. This is how interest groups work. The Israel lobby is like the National Rifle Association. These are incredibly powerful interest groups or lobbies. And that's perfectly legitimate in the American political system. But I think the effect of our work is that, you know, we have made it 
uh, kind of mainstream to talk about the lobby and also to make the argument that the lobby is powerful. Has the uh, has the book or has the article in the book have the article in the book had any impact on American policy towards Israel? I think the answer is no. Uh, I think the lobby basically uh, beat back any challenge that the article in the book presented. Uh, I think the lobby uh, uh, continues to exert huge influence on American Middle East policy and will for the foreseeable future. What was it like, though, when a lot of the groups came after you and you're in the middle of all that? What was it like among your colleagues at the University of Chicago? And did you think that um, did you think it was a fair shot from all the different uh, places that, uh, that were upset by the book? Well, uh, in terms of my colleagues, you know, in the field at large and at the University of Chicago, uh, there were virtually no problems. Uh, it wasn't like anybody was, you know, threatening our tenure uh, or uh, not inviting us uh, to academic conferences or dissing our work. Uh, that was not the case. I, I don't think that many of our colleagues, I think this would be true of Steve as well as me, uh, Steve, Steve, Wall? The parap- Steve Wald, right, who, who wrote the book with me, who's at Harvard. Uh, I don't think many of our colleagues at either institution defended us. They all kept their head down below the parapet because they saw the tremendous battering that we were taking. Uh, it's quite ironic, but to the extent that we were defended, we were defended by Jews. Uh, and uh, and there were quite a few Jews who defended us. Uh, what did you make of that? I expected that because uh, there were many uh, Jews who were critical of Israel, uh, critical of the lobby, uh, and thought that American policy towards Israel was headed in the wrong direction. Uh, and... Uh, so I, I didn't find that surprising. It, it was very interesting. I mean, people like Tony Jutt became great supporters. Tony wrote a piece uh, in the New York Times. Uh, we didn't ask him to. It, in fact, I was shocked when I saw it defending us. Um, and uh, and then there were people like Norman Finkelstein and Noam Chomsky, who I thought would have agreed with us, uh, who disagreed with us. Right? They they. Uh, uh, they're both uh, very critical of Israel. One could argue that they're both more critical of Israel than Steve and I are. But uh, they actually don't think the lobby has that kind of independent power. Uh, they basically think that the lobby uh, and Israel are our attack dogs, that we manipulate them for selfish purposes. Uh, and of course, I disagree with that completely. But... Uh, but anyway, I engaged with both of those guys, you know, during the uh, uh, during the brouhaha over the article and the book. But but again, most of our defenders were uh, were Jews, and uh, and uh, there were you know not many of our colleagues who came to our defense. Uh, they they were not critical of us, but they just kept their head down, and, and I think they kept their head down because they saw what was happening to us. I mean, we faced an onslaught. Uh, I could, you know, spend hours telling you, you know, the different things that happened to us. The lobby is very powerful, and they appropriately saw us as a threat. Uh, We were two mainstream academics with impeccable reputations at first-rate universities, and we were being critical of the lobby, and we were being critical of the U.S.-Israeli relationship. Uh, we were arguing that it was not good for the United States, and indeed it was not good for Israel. And this was not a message they wanted to hear, and certainly from you know two prominent academics. And in Steve's case at the time, he was the academic dean at the Kennedy School, which gave him a certain cachet that I think really drove the lobby crazy. Uh, so they really... Uh, brought out the big guns, uh, leveled them at us, and fired away. As you know, certain 
people that are mentioned by people like you, uh, like in this interview so far, when you mentioned that Donald Trump was the greatest liar um, that you've seen in leadership, that created a reaction by people listening to this. And the next thing I'm going to ask you about will create another reaction from the other side, and that is, why were you a supporter of Bernie Sanders? Well, I, I liked Bernie Sanders and voted for him uh, over uh, uh, Hillary Clinton in uh, 2016 and over uh, Joe Biden in 2020. And I did that in large part because I think uh, that economic inequality is a huge problem in this country. Uh, and what has happened to the working class and even to the middle classes, the lower middle classes in this country, is uh, disastrous for democracy. Uh, I mean, I think this is why Donald Trump got elected in 2016 and why Donald Trump would have got reelected in 2020 absent COVID uh, and stands a reasonable chance of coming back in 2024. There's just a huge amount of dissatisfaction out there. And I think a lot of it just has to do with the fact that common people have been screwed. And we have a lot of people who are getting wealthier and wealthier. And this is not a good thing. And I thought Bernie Sanders uh, was uh, the only person out there uh, who was really willing to tackle that problem. Uh, I didn't worry that Bernie Sanders was going to turn the United States into a socialist country. I didn't think that was possible, given the structural forces at play in the United States of America. But I thought he would have a really positive influence uh, on how things um, uh, evolved here in the United States if he got elected. So that's why I voted for him. I would just say to you, if you know, 15, 20 years ago, uh, you had told me I was going to vote for Bernie Sanders in uh, 2016 or 2020, I would have said, you have to get your head examined. That's not possible. But as you know, the world works in funny ways. And I do think the United States is in deep trouble at home. Uh, I mean, this is, you know, another subject. I mean, the whole question of foreign policy versus domestic politics, what we've done, you know, certainly since the Cold War ended is we've run all over the world trying to promote democracy, fighting wars here and there and doing this and doing that. And at the same time, democracy has eroded on the home front. Uh, and I love the fact that I live in a liberal democracy. I never want that to change. I thank my lucky stars. I was born and raised here. But I think that we're in trouble, and I think we better start to think about how to fix problems here on the home front. And by the way, this is why a lot of people voted for Donald Trump. Not me, but a lot of other people. But this is why I voted for Bernie Sanders. Have you ever met anybody on the faculty <clears throat> excuse me, at the University of Chicago who voted for Donald Trump? No. Uh, in my field, there's only one person who admits that he voted for Donald Trump and actually is proud of it. And that's Randy Schweller, uh, who teaches at Ohio State. And I respect him for that. Right. I mean, I don't agree with him, obviously, but um, on his vote. But he voted for Donald Trump. He's very upfront about it. And he you know, he makes a, a reasonably good case for why he did it. But I think that there are probably a good number of other people who voted for Trump. Uh, you know, in, in the world that I operate in, the security world, I wouldn't be surprised if 10 percent of the people I know who do security voted for Trump, uh, but won't admit it uh, uh, for all the obvious reasons. What about the students and a place like the University of Chicago? How do they get more than one side when it comes to this kind of an issue when there's so much dislike among academia for Donald Trump? They don't. Uh, I mean, uh, self-censorship is uh, rife at every university and college in the United States. Faculties are remarkably liberal. Political center gravity is far to the left. Uh, and students understand the importance of getting good grades and uh, getting letters of recommendation from faculty members, uh, almost all of whom are to the left of center, uh, and, and therefore they stifle themselves. Uh, this is well documented, and I've talked to enough students about this that uh, uh, when I read an article on it, I find it hardly surprising. Chicago is known for being a leader in the free speech movement. A lot of universities follow their 
uh, code, uh, but a lot don't. And what would you say about what's happening across the country in these universities where a lot of people on the right can't stand universities, can't stand professors, don't like tenure? Uh, I've even heard one particular young leader suggest that kids shouldn't even go to college because of it. Well, just on the University of Chicago, I think the University of Chicago is the best place on this issue. Uh, I mean, we have a rich tradition of freedom of speech, and uh, and we're, I think, clearly better than most other places. But even here, there's a problem. There's no way you can avoid it. Uh, it, it, It's a widespread trend. Uh, And many of the people who come here uh, to occupy teaching positions were trained at other universities, and they bring uh, their mindset from other places here. Uh, so this place is not that different, in my opinion, uh, than most other universities. It is different, but not that different. Uh, I can understand why a lot of people are very angry. Um, and uh, they believe that uh, uh, that universities are, are not open to people who are on the right, and that there's something fundamentally wrong there. Uh, and uh, I think there is a large element of truth in that. Again, online and found your the John J. Mearsheimer uh, University of Chicago website. <clears throat> and I, this is really off topic, but I needed to get you on the phone i need for you to explain it to me the portrait of you yes and the language below it i mean i i i didn't i can't figure it out tell me about that portrait and anybody that wants to look it up can go to uh, google type in your name university of chicago and it'll come up but explain that to me yeah what happened was a few years ago I won an award at the University of Pennsylvania from a society that had been present at the University of Pennsylvania, you know, since the 18th century. And uh, the way this society worked was they came up with a portrait of the person who won the award that they then hung on the wall uh, in the uh, society's uh, office. And that was the picture or the portrait that they came up with for me. It was not something I invented. And they presented me with the portrait. And uh, somebody suggested that I should put uh, it on my website, which I did. And uh, I had thought about taking it down. And then I talked to a number of people and almost everybody said, Absolutely not. We love that portrait. You have to leave that up there. So I've left it up there uh, over time. And uh, it obviously attracts a lot of attention. Witness our conversation here. Well, it was not something I came up with. But but then I looked at the names at the bottom. Uh, and one of them is the fellow. I don't even, I don't even know how to pronounce his name. Marwayne. Uh, Palos, if that's even close, who does self-portraits. I got on his website, and I'm thinking, wow, why is his name on this on your portrait, and who is he? I'm embarrassed to say I have no idea. <laughs> I, I, I have to go back and look. I, I would recommend it. <laughs> and then one more question. Is it a misprint, or is, is this a – this is called the Philo Society? The Collegiate yeah. Literary Society that you were honored at? Yes, that that's the name of it, I'm quite sure. Okay, but the, at the bottom of your portrait, it says Merchiavelli. Is it a misprint, yeah. or what is that about? Not no, not Machiavelli, were, but Merchiavelli. Well, they were trying to combine my name with Machiavelli's <laughs> name. That, that's what I think happened here. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, and, and and they produced, you know, the, the, everything except the head in that picture is part of a famous portrait of Machiavelli. Of yes. course, in the, the original, his head is there, and they just superimposed my head on Machiavelli's head. And uh, well, actually, if, if there is sort of a an ancient political philosopher or an old timer who I should 
uh, be identified with. It's not Machiavelli. It's Thomas Hobbes. Uh, uh, Hobbes was really among those, you know, great thinkers of the past, people like Rousseau, Machiavelli, Hobbes. Hobbes was the first structural realist. Uh, He's the person who I have the most in common with, Uh, not Machiavelli. In your predictions over your professor life, uh, when have you been right and when have you been wrong? Wow. And I'm thinking of the wars that you, I mean, you were a big, you were not for the Iraq, Iraq war and things like that. And <clears throat> yeah, I, I could give you a couple examples of where I was right and wrong. Uh, I, I think just on the, the two Iraq wars, uh, I, I predicted that we would win the war, the first Iraq war in a week or less and suffer very few casualties. And I wrote that in both the Chicago Tribune and the New York Times. I, I was probably—I think I was one of three people who predicted it would be a cakewalk. This is the '91 war, and in fact, Mike Royko, the famous Chicago columnist, wrote a whole column on me, asking how was it that a bearded professor at the University of Chicago could have got this right and everybody else got it wrong. So I was right there, and I, I think that I was right, uh, along with a good number of my. IR colleagues about the second Gulf War. Uh, This is the invasion of Iraq in March of 2003. Uh, Where have I been wrong? Uh, With regard to Ukraine, I wrote what was at the time an infamous article saying that Ukraine should not give up its nuclear weapons. This is in 1993 in Foreign Affairs. I wrote an article that said that they... Uh, Ukraine should not give up its nuclear weapons because the Russians would come knocking someday. And I believe they will not give up their nuclear weapons. So I think I was right on the first point, wrong on the second point. They did give up their nuclear weapons, so I was wrong. Going back to the end of the Cold War, I wrote a very famous article or infamous article to some called Back to the Future. Uh, one version was published in the Atlantic Monthly, another version in the academic journal International Security. And there I made three predictions. Uh, I said that um, the United States would leave Europe, uh, that NATO would be kaput. Uh, and I said, if the United States left Europe, uh, you would in effect, go back to the future. You'd go back to security competition and conflict in Europe. Now, I was wrong in that we didn't leave Europe. Right? My prediction that the United States at the end of the Cold War would leave Europe because the Soviet threat had gone away was wrong. I believe I was right that had we left, that there would have been security competition, and that's why we stayed Right. So the fact that we have the fact that we have had peace in Europe and we have not had security competition is not because I was wrong, because we never pulled out. So we can't tell whether I was right or wrong. And I believe that the reason we stayed was because people understood that I would be proved right if we pulled out of Europe. Right. So I think I was part right and part wrong on that one. So those would be some examples. My guess, to be honest, Brian, is if you try as an IR scholar to you know, predict what's going to happen in the future, uh, if you get it right 75% of the time, you're in the Hall of Fame. That's my intuition. You'll get it right 75% of the time. You'll be wrong 25% of the time. Nobody's going to come close to getting it right all the time. And the reason is that we live in a world of radical uncertainty. I mean, if you and I five years ago were sitting having a cup of coffee and some smart person came up to us and said there's going to be a war in Ukraine in five years, we would have thought the person was crazy. A war in Ukraine? I mean, who would have ever thought this was really going to happen? I knew there was going to be trouble. I didn't imagine there was going to be a war like the one we're seeing now, right? And uh, so it's very hard to predict the future because... You know, so many factors come into play that are unforeseen. So, again, uh, it's not surprising that I've been wrong on a number of occasions, but I've been right a good number of times as well. Our guest for the last hour, John J. Mearsheimer, professor of international relations, political science 
at the University of Chicago. We thank you so much for uh, giving us the background that you just gave us. It's my pleasure, Brian. I appreciate the fact that you uh, asked me all these terrific questions. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org. 